heard like a woman complaining about how, you know, why are we even getting vaccinated when you still have to wear a mask after? And like podcast Milana just popped up out of nowhere, like literally popped up. They didn't know I was there. And I was like, well, actually, (laughs) I felt like Adam ruins everything like that moment. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice feeling. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to finish up our TriMate trilogy and also learn about the first African-American woman with a solo show at the L.A. County Museum of Art. Oh, yeah. And she was like the first African-American person to get a solo show there. Person. My bad. I wrote down. Yeah. I apologize person she's got she's got first dibs first dibs baby yeah so as a refresher because i know over the last few months you've done your primate trilogy what are the other two scientists not the past few months more like uh i've actually with our i did one a season so one was during the first season her name was diane fossey and she studied the apes of africa gorillas they all studied apes they're all technically great apes but Diane Fossey studied gorillas. Jane Goodall studied chimpanzees, also in Africa, for our second season. And then for our third season, we are touching on Rute Gadlikas, who studied orangutans. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of Terry Pratchett when the first thing I think of is the librarian from the Discworld series, who is a orangutan. Orangutan? I was about to say, I just, I totally mispronounced it. Do you know that orangutan is, like, literally translates as person of the forest so your librarian could be a orangutan depending on how she grew up well there's a magical explosion involved transforming someone to human into more of a primate species wait, but how did, wait where 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 is this library at the unseen university in ankhmore pork duh i'm sorry where what when? on the <laughs> plains in the disc world um okay terry pratchett it's a terry pratchett i thought it was like set in our world never mind Nope, not at all. I well, I mean that makes it even weirder because orangutans are only found in Indonesia and Malaysia. So I don't know how that happened. But Oh really? Yeah. So that person, unless the climate is anything like Indonesia or Malaysia, is having a really hard time. It, yeah, it's it's more like London geographically. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> no. A poor, poor creature. <laughs> Um, yeah, so she was born, not not your librarian, but the scientist that I'm talking about today was born. Okay, all right. Barute Marija Fitomena Gadikas. She was born May 10th, 1946 in Weisbaden, Germany. I obviously didn't pronounce that correctly. So mom and dad, Antanas and Filomena, were Lithuanian ref- refugees fleeing during World War II. That's curious. What? I mean, World War II, not many people were fleeing to Germany. No, she was born in Germany, and they fled from Germany because they were originally in Lithuania. Then they went to Germany, and then they fled. 
Okay. After World War II, they were still looking to flee from yes. Germany. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They peaced out. And they went to Canada. She was two. They fled to Canada. So they bopped around until they settled into Toronto. And that's where Barute grew up. So dad was the sole breadwinner. And he was like a miner, like coal miner situation. Okay. Or like copper. Sorry. Copper miner. She went through grade school. She went through high school. Uh, and she went through her first year of university in Canada. And then I couldn't get why they moved from Canada, but they ended up in California between her freshman and sophomore year, her entire family. So she transferred to the University of British Columbia to the University of California in L.A. Like, as she was growing up, she, like, loved Curious George. She loved reading National Geographic. She grew up reading about Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall. She got her bachelor's in psychology and zoology in 1966 at the University of California, and then she slid right into her master's program in anthropology in 1969. And once she was doing that particular degree, she met none other than Louis Leakey. Hey, that name sounds familiar. Yes. Isn't that's that's the Charlie Angels dude, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the Charlie Angels dude. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me actually, actually, they did call him. They did call them. It was either trimates or Leaky's angels. For there were three of them. So basically, yeah. as I told you before, Verite grew up reading about Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall. And Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall wouldn't have been able to do the stuff that they had done without Louis Leakey in the picture. He mm-hmm. was the money person. He found the funding for their research for their camps, everything. And, I mean, being Brute, reading about these two women, and then running into freaking Louis Leakey, you know she was fangirling mm-hmm. real hard. And she she went for it. She was like, look, Diane did gorillas, Jane did chimpanzees, I want to go talk and experience the orangutans. And originally, Louis was not all into that. So he wasn't feeling it at first. Yeah. But she was like, orangutans haven't been observed yet. Like, I'm super passionate about them. Would you be willing to take me in and, like, fund these trips for me? Mm -hmm. And I, I, between you and me, I think my, so I suspect the reason that he wasn't totally into it was because his work and his wife's work was in Africa. Diane's work was in Africa. Jane's work was in Africa. And as we touched on early orangutan or earlier, orangutans are found only in Southern Asia. So mm-hmm. I have a feeling that when she was proposing this, he wasn't really seeing a prospect out there, or he just had like a bit of a bias towards one area. Not necessarily a bias, but if you already have resources set up in certain countries and streams of funding mm-hmm. that you can direct it to and, you know, different mm-hmm. national organizations and programs you're in league with. That you're like, okay, cool. Like, that's a whole different area that you might not have any connections. Right. He basically would have to set up a whole new space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she she somehow got him to say yes. I guess just the passion that she had for him, like, just mm-hmm. the, the constant, like, the perseverance. He finally was like, okay, I'll find you the money. And within three years... <laughs> She got that money. <laughs> nice. In 1971, 
she and her husband set off to Borneo in Indonesia. So specifically, they would they would set up in the Tanjung Puting Reserve, which was already there, but that's where they were going to make their camp. The reserve is in the middle of Indonesia, but Indonesia is made up of 17,508 islands. Yeah. So there's a big island close to the middle of the territory, and the the reserve is on the southern part of that big island. Also, I learned that Indonesia is an archipelago, and that an archipelago is just a geographical term for a bunch of islands. Uh, yeah, I covered that when I covered last season, Murney. Oh my goodness, woman. All right. I know, I know. It's just... Yeah, and it's also the country with the largest Muslim population. I covered an episode about an artist in Indonesia. Yeah. I did. Yeah, she did all those really fun, like, sex-positive paintings. Yeah, but not where she was. All right. That's cool. Whatever. I mean, who am I to give you a pop quiz on any one of the various 42 artists that I have covered and you just don't remember? It's like you don't love me. That's okay. Honestly, sometimes I wouldn't remember half the facts that I've written about, so there's that. I think I'd only really sticks if I write it down and I wrote it down, so now I know an archipelago is a group of islands. Yep. That's that's um refresher for me and all of the other listeners who are just as bad as I am. You're welcome. That's cool. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, she gets the money. She's told by several professors that it would be impossible because orangutans were elusive. They lived in swamps that were difficult to traverse and, you know, it was kind of like in the middle of nowhere and it just was like not the best suited for a Lithuanian Canadian woman that resided in California. Like mm-hmm. it would be it would be difficult for you, Barute. And Barute was like, no, I'm going. And you said that at this point we're in the late 1970s. Early 1970s, 1971. Early 1970s, they traveled to Indonesia to study at one of their national parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, at that point, up until 92, I believe, they were under a dictatorship, military dictatorship. So I could see that whole political factor that probably added a whole other layer to having a, a Westerner come in and study. She gets there. She sets up a camp base that she would name Camp Leaky because, once again, she is a huge fangirl. I mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm here. I'm doing the thing. When she got there, though, there was like no electricity, roads, telephones. There were poachers, giant bugs, and very wild orphaned and ex-captive orangutans. So forests in the area were being cut down. Poachers were killing off the species and babies were being left orphaned to die. So she took them in. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. Like, it was no fun. Like, it was not a good place. (laughs) Yeah. She took them in, she took care of them, and, I mean, these orangutans, once they were in her care, like, they would throw things around camp, turn on radios, tear up her mattress, they would steal mosquito nets to hang over their own sleeping areas in the trees. Uh, (laughs) They even, like, put flour and eggs together because they saw a cook making pancakes once and they wanted to do the thing, too. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) They were having a good time, and, like... Here's the deal. I couldn't get the exact date that she went back to Canada, but she lived in Indonesia for at least 40 years. So there she did exactly what Fossey and Goodall did, but with orangutans. So she made friends with them. She studied them. She found out their life cycle from their gestation period to developmental stages to pubescence to motherhood to death. She's the reason we have the information on these creatures that we do. So she could not and would not domesticate them because they needed to be in the wild. 
she needed to release them back into the wild where they could thrive. But she needed to make sure they got to the point where they could do that. So there was Mm -hmm. no taking back nets from these, like, like there wasn't, she wasn't domesticating them and be like, no, you don't do that. Like, she was letting them do whatever. Yeah. Okay. But she was so in sync with the orangutan lifestyle that she would, as well as as other recruited Indonesian individuals, act like their surrogate orangutan mothers. So let them hang off of her, um, would feed them, would like kind of, you know, groom them, like pretend that she was an orangutan mama. Um, and then she created jungle gyms for the babies to learn their mo- motor and foraging functions. What? Yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> it was pretty great. Actually, there's a documentary that is um, narrated by none other than Morgan Freeman. I was going to say, was, is it David Attenborough? Because, I mean, no. he's like... <laughs> like a number one star in the natural world for sure yeah okay. i mean morgan freeman's like an okay runner-up as an as a narrative though like a narrator yeah that's he's an okay number two i guess <laughs> if you can't get david attenborough like all right <laughs> it was uh it was a documentary on both birthday and then another woman daphne and she dealt with uh orphaned elephants so it was interesting to watch, and you got you got to see the orangutans play on like the jungle gym and like move things around, and it was pretty great. Yeah. So once they were released, the orangutans were free to come back and see her at any time, and they would. Really, they loved her, and she even had a very close little girl, Siswi. She was the first orangutan actually born at the camp. Okay. And once she was released into the wild, she would come back to visit, give Verte a big hug, and then steal her morning coffee. <laughs> that's, that's asking a lot. You just got to be like, you are so lucky. I love you right now. <laughs> Literally, there, there's footage of her going, no, no this is my coffee. Oh, I knew this would happen. And then the, the <laughs> sis, we would grab it and go, this is mine now. <laughs> you hand it over, and then you get that second cop that you've had the foresight to brew up (laughs) it's great (laughs) oh my goodness oh man and again birthday was there for 40 years so um she had married twice had three children and those children were free to grow up with and around the orangutans like cousins you there are pictures of them hugging so i believe it was jane goodall so when she had her young child they had to put the baby in a cage because they were they afraid of, like, the natural predators out there. So was this the same kind of setting here in Indonesia? Like, was there there's the same risk level around these primates? Apparently not, because I think the chimpanzees were ready to, like, chimpanzees are more aggressive than orangutans. They are more okay. likely to eat other primates' babies than orangutans are. Orangutans fact, just... <laughs> I didn't think I'd learn, but okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, they are... Far more aggressive. So orangutans are just super sweet, and they're just like, yeah, they're like playful and they're like mischievous, but they're not really dangerous from what I've I've come across. Okay, they're not gonna like steal your morning coffee and then like pour the hot liquid all over your baby. Not no 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 okay. not intentionally right. at least. Yeah. <laughs> all right, good to know. Yeah, no, there are pictures of like children and grandchildren who are like hugging orangutans, like two years old, two year olds. And, like, the orangutan okay. was posing for the picture, too. So <laughs> so it's a, it's a much more relaxed climate studying those particular animals. Okay, cool. Yes. Yeah. Then, I mean, Jane Goodall, she she put her uh, her baby in a maid cage because she didn't want chimpanzees to eat her baby. Well, yeah. That's, yep. Yeah. Correct. 
<laughs> so that's cool that she was really able to make it like a whole family involved environment while she's doing her scientific studies. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, her son when he grew up, she, he was actually helping with the um with the rehabilitation as well. Like if like sometimes he would go in and take the the orangutan out of the issue, like the the problem, because sometimes they were just captive or like kept as pets. And like mm. they were like super scared, and there was one, there was one orangutan that like he wouldn't go in the truck, so her son had like a like a moped. Okay, orangutan wouldn't do anything but wrap himself around the son while the, he was driving the motorcycle. Like that's the only way he would go with them. That's curious. I just imagine them like kind of speeding through a little village on their way to like the national park, <laughs> and just someone catching a glimpse of them. Like, Wait, what? Like. <laughs> Some white boy just go by with a orangutan on the back of his motorcycle. I th- they are both wearing helmets. What? Oh my god, it was great. It was great. That was great footage. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, he was just hanging on to this. I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> The more I learned about this, the more I'm like, oh, orangutans are actually really, like, solid creatures. Like, I really like these guys. <laughs> In your research, I'm, I think that the dominant males actually develop a kind of unique skull structure. Mm-hmm. Like, they kind of fan up a bit at all. Dude, I don't, I don't know if you, you cover that I didn't get to or... the anatomy of it. No. Hold on. Okay. I, I yeah, I, I only bring it up because it's mentioned once in my Terry Pratchett book. But yeah, I guess it's a thing of dominance where the males will actually, like, their foreheads, there's, like, a feature that's more pronounced on... But this reminds me of, like, not altered male cats who are allowed to, like, reach maturity naturally. And have the biggest balls in the world? Well, not not the ball. <laughs> their faces, their head expands like that, too. Like, you know that they have had oh, really? many... Yeah, like... Oh, I didn't know that. They lose it once they get neutered. So whenever you, they get like, they brought me a big tom with a TNR and their big, like, big fucking face. I would like <sighs> squeeze the cheeks and be like, "Oh, you're such a good baby boy. You're gonna lose these." But he looks, yeah. they're so cute. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Flanges. I'm gonna Google this real quick. Orangutan flanges have large, flappy cheek pads known as flanges. They prefer males with them over those without. I guess yeah, hormones. That's probably just the same reason the cats have those little, the jowls that I was talking to you about. Oh, they're so fucking cute. I miss them. They smell awful, but they are super cuddly. (laughs) (laughs) They smell like male cats ready to get down and do the dirty. Yeah, I'll pass on that. Neuter. Neuter and spay your animals. Yeah. Yeah, so there was actually another orangutan who was an alpha, and he was an orphaned baby that she had taken in and released. Mm-hmm. And he fathered several babies to help preserve the species once he got to that point. And I am a firm believer that without Barute, the orangutan species would have fallen into extinction. What's their life uh, expectancy? 35 to 45 years. Okay. So, like, mid-humans. All right. And um, do you know, like, at what point, like, they're they're ready to be released? Like, is it after, like, a few years or they're... After three, or is it after like seven? There's seven okay, years. A little bit of a longer period. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got into what their name translates into. We got into the apes. They're not monkeys. 
they are considered a keystone species in their area. And what that means is it's basically, they're basically species on which other species in an ecosystem largely depend. And if it were removed from the ecosystem, it would change drastically. Okay, so like like bees, I guess they would be considered like a keystone species? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Like, we need them around, right? Yeah. Their birth interval rate, which is the time elapsed between a full-term pregnancy and the termination or completion of the next pregnancy, is 7.7 years. And that's the longest period of any mammal. Oh, okay. So it's not like mm-hmm. just a few months after having a kid, they can get pregnant again. Nope. No. Okay. Yeah. So these factors, along with poaching and deforestation, has resulted in their population decreasing 97% in the 20th century, putting them on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's red list of threatened species. They are an endangered Mm. species. So Garute's intervention brought knowledge of the orangutan to the public, and she personally rehabilitated more than 500 of them herself. Whoa. Yes. So in 1986, she founded the Orangutan Foundation International. Uh, It's at Camp Leakey, and it's just facilitated more awareness, knowledge, allocation of resources to the orangutan cause. 1996-1998, she served as a senior advisor on orangutan issues to Indonesia's Ministry of Forests. So the influence there, she had influence there. Mm -hmm. She could be like, okay, well, this is great for them. This is not so great for them. That sort of thing. So she was able to kind of mold what was happening between those two years. In 1997, she won the Kalpaturu Award, which is the highest honor in Indonesia for environmental leadership. And she's the only non-Indonesian and first woman to receive the award. Oh, okay. And as scientists do, she wrote four books, countless journal (laughs) articles. She's now a professor at the Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And Mm -hmm. she was on the cover of National uh, Geography twice. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. Countless awards are given to her. And she's, like, even if she's a professor in Canada, she still has, like, social media platforms that mm-hmm. are continuing to influence the recognition and the awareness of the orangutans in need. So we're talking, like, I literally just watched her live um, Q&A on Facebook. <laughs> she, oh, so, <laughs> so she's fun. got Twitter. I know. So she's still around. She's still kicking. And she's still doing what she needs to do, which is yeah. amazing. And, like, I... I don't imagine what the where I mean I I can imagine exactly where the orangutans would be if she hadn't persuaded Leaky to help her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to facilitate that. Mm-hmm. But that's that's Brute. That's what I got for you. That's cool. I finished the three, and I might actually get into Mary Leaky. Yeah, I was just thinking you could um, kind of examine that couple. Because mm-hmm. it would be interesting to know a little bit more about Lewis Leakey on just how he came about facilitating these these scientists to do their research. I yeah, I can't wait to get into that. But I figured I would finish up my little my little uh, trilogy. Man, yours has like a nice feel good fuzzy element to it, and just mine does not. Oh no, yeah, it's not like terrible. It's just a lot of like real world reality that's kind of harsh. Oh, no. I'm going to stare at these tomcat cheeks while you tell me these horrible things. Yeah, I talk about American racism. <laughs> All right, well, on my end today, I'm not going abroad. I've been abroad the last two episodes this season. We are back in the United States, and we're heading to L.A. Pretty much just going to stay there. 
for the most part. So honestly, the person I'm going to cover today, I I normally wouldn't. What? Yeah, which honestly makes it like all the more important that I do. And that does make sense. It does. And what I mean by that is that usually I pick someone with like a reasonable amount of biographical information available about them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I'm interested in their art, but I also want to know about their lives. And that helps put context into things into like the who, what, where, when, and how of like what they did. That is not the case for today's artist. A early 20th century figurative sculptor, Beulah Woodward. And I blame that on white supremacy. Isn't it just like a paragraph on wiki? Pretty much. Um, I normally don't check out Wikipedia at all because I like, usually I can find enough like other sources. I don't even have to look at it. But I did have to hit up, hit up wiki today and be like, what sources are they citing? That was That's and, legitimately you know. my first source I go to. <laughs> I mean, if you check out the sources, usually they can be really helpful. Yeah. And in this case, they actually did provide a few more things a very limited few more things yeah. but it was slim pickings unfortunately so i was like ah oh, great that's wonderful it's nothing on jstor nothing oh my god nothing at all that's not good wait okay no i lie i found two things in jstor they were mentions of her offhand okay that's unfortunate yeah, it was unfortunate because that's a good resource to, that's where i usually start to find material about these people but, yeah, things were very limited. And it's kind of a shame. Like you said in the opening, she was the first African-American artist to have a solo show at what is now the L.A. County Museum of Art. And that's, like, a really big deal. How did she get there? It's a little murky. And I'm kind of surprised because that, I mean, nowadays that's one of the leading art museums in the country. But there's very little actually known about her. And I see it as Beulah just being one of many intentionally excluded from American history because of racism. Mm. Yeah, which, you know, happy Black History Month. Oh, man. And honestly, probably to an extent, feminist whitewashing, too. Yeah. We see a good bit of that in our in our research. Mm. Um, in terms of Black History Month, I didn't know. It actually started as a week-long event. Was it? What? Yeah, Black History Month. Initially, it was just a week long. Oh, no. Just a week? See, uh, on another things of things they don't teach you in American public school. Just uh, one one week. Okay. Just one week. Yeah, so it started in 1926. A An educator and historian, Dr. Carter Goodwin Woodson, he founded it. Mm. And he got a whole bunch of schools to kind of sign on with it. And it wasn't until 50 years after that, in 1976, that it formally became known as Afro-American Month and now Black History Month. I'm glad they got that month. Now, if we could just give them the rest of the year, that'd be great. Or just, like, not state-sanctioned murder by police. That would be awesome, too. That, too. But, yeah, in terms of, like, recent news specific to Black History Month, there there was a private school, like, just the other week in Utah that allowed parents to opt their children out of Black History Month curriculum. Why? It was no surprise the school's 97% white. Oh. But everyone, when people heard about it, they were like, uh, what? Excuse me? And so the school backtracked and we're like, never mind, guys. Never mind. We're going to teach them about Black History Month. Um, but everyone was like, that is, no. <laughs> what? Who let that happen? Who thought that was a good idea? Why? Yeah. I mean, even the founder, the Dr. Woodson, of Black History Week, he mm-hmm. was like, 
this is a start. It shouldn't be a week. It should just be American history. Mm-hmm. And like we're still having that argument today. Like that's still a debate, which is really unfortunate. But yeah, there's a little bit of local news for you. It's never going to end. Yeah. But back to, to Beulah. So I do know that she was born in 1895, very rural area of Ohio. She was the youngest daughter of the family. And, and a, a really impactful moment for Beulah growing up happened in 1907, when she was about 12 years old. And she like met someone from Africa. <gasps> what? Yeah, no, that it legitimately was really huge and it impacted her art later on. Oh my God. I don't have like details on them. I have no circumstances of why they were traveling through the area, you know, who they were. Um, I suspect that maybe they were from like maybe the Democratic Republic of Congo. How long do you think this person was in her life? I have no idea. Oh no. So you got like, no details. Oh no. At all. I don't know if maybe. They were, like, traveling through and they spent a week in her town or just, like, a a night or something. Mm. I don't know if they even stayed with her family or if, you know, someone who was staying with some friends down the the way. Like, I have no idea. But it it really opened Vila's eyes up to a whole new, like, history and culture that she just had no idea about. And, like, thinking about it, I mean, we're still in the early, like, about 1907. Most likely, Vila's grandparents were slaves. Yeah, there's like a 99.9% chance. Yeah, like I was, I was kind of around the math and I was like, okay, let's presume that Beulah's mother had her when she was 20. And then Beulah's mother was born when her grandmother was 20. Mm. That would put her grandmother born in the early 1860s. And it wasn't until Juneteenth, June 19th of 1865, that like fully freed the last of the enslaved people in the United States. Yeah. Now, just like your family did, Beulah's family were like, yeah, no, we're going to move to California. We're moving to L.A. (laughs) It's a safe space. Much warmer. Nicer weather. So at some point when she was a teen, they made that move and they settled in an area just like a few miles south of L.A. proper. And here in L.A., like Beulah had way more opportunities just for education, but then also to pursue art. So it was in high school that she started sculpting. And then afterwards, she took classes at, like, various art colleges in the area. So the Los Angeles School of Art, the Otis Art Institute, the University of Southern California. So since records are scarce, I'm not sure if Beulah, like, went on to study art right after high school or if it wasn't until 10 years later when she was married. That's a little muddled, that timeline. But... But she went to school. Yes. Okay. And I think the fact that she wasn't fully enrolled at one of those schools, it was because of segregation. Mm. I mean, we're in the 1910s at this point. And at the University of Southern California, it wasn't until 1963 when they actually admitted black students. And that was because of a court order. Oh, no. Yeah. Which, I mean, you'll like, so the first black student to be enrolled she went on to get her PhD and I think is still currently working as a um, in public health. Yes! Yeah. But even with not being able to fully enroll, Beulah did learn from some prominent artists of the day. There was a traditional figure sculptor. She learned under a ceramic artist mm-hmm. and even a Russian prince. I'm sorry, he was a Russian prince? She worked under a figurative artist who was a Russian prince. He was from a very noble Russian family. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I know. That was a bit of a wild card. <laughs> it was like, so much cash. like, and Prince, Prince Chowalski. 
I was like, wait, what? Like, Prince is his first name or he's like an actual legit prince? <laughs> an actual. <laughs> he was an actual Russian prince. I wonder if he told her that he was a prince or he just kept it a secret. Oh, I'm sure everyone knew. Because his dad was a prince who was a diplomat here in the United States. Doesn't mean. And his mother was American. Oh. I was hoping he kept it a secret. I feel like that is like a fanfic you could write. <laughs> there doesn't need to be a romantic, like, anything. It's just he just wants to be himself. He doesn't want to be a prince. You know, that is actually another question that could be solved if we could travel back in time <laughs> with a My Favorite Feminist podcast history question. <laughs> and we finally get to the bottom of it. <laughs> In the corner of his studio, as he's working on a little miniature, like, monumental sculpture <laughs> of, like, someone regal on, like, a horse, there's just, like, the TARDIS sound, and, like, out we pop. <laughs> that may be a little frightening. Look, anybody, any one of our scientist ladies listening willing to create a time machine, we will gladly take on that experiment of being the people using it. Gladly. We gotta answer questions. I feel a little put off. I like how you're willing to sacrifice me and you in an experimental time traveling experiment, but you won't travel into space with me. You're right. I think you need to re-examine, <laughs> like, re-examine your priorities. Doesn't matter where we go in time. The Earth will still have an atmosphere. Unless it explodes. Unless the sun explodes, excuse me, and then that's a whole different thing. So we just won't go in front. Like, we won't go that far. We won't go that far. I'm just saying. All right, well, time traveling questions aside um beulah had support with the teachers that she studied under and apparently there was encouragement for her to study sculpture abroad i wonder why i know right and we've covered a few other american women who have done the same did she go to france no she didn't so i mean yeah so paris that was a hot spot rome too super popular uh, Paris in particular, we cover in episode three, one of our first baby episodes, no. African-American sculptor Meta Vox Work Fuller, and she was an African-American sculptor working at a- about the same time okay. as Beulah, and she went to Paris, and so she had that opportunity, but Beulah did not. Her parents were like, no. And to be fair, money probably played a factor Correct. into it, so the people that we have covered who were able to go outside the United States to study they either came from wealthy families or in one case fell down an elevator and used their lawsuit money to travel abroad <laughs> yeah adelaide johnson sculptor of the suffragist movement that was last last season Life is such a funny thing <laughs> i mean like she only broke a handful of bones and by a handful i mean her legs and a rib cage and cracked her skull but she healed but she got that money and she could go to rome <laughs> So I, thankfully, Beulah did not have that experience. She did not have to be physically maimed to travel and get money. So Beulah did, did not go abroad. And I think that was hard for her, knowing that she had the skill set, but just couldn't pursue right. it. That's really sad. Yeah. I, I think it was hard. And I believe at this point, she was working as a maid. Mm. But yeah, details are a little muddled. Now, within, like, L.A. at this time, the creative scene, it's Hollywood. Yeah. A city does attract artists, but it's not a major fine arts no, hub. No, it's and, film. Like, that doesn't happen until the 1960s. Yeah. Right now, it's a hub for, like, film and acting and costume design and then later animation and special effects. 
the talkies. Yeah, no, I'm legit at this point. That's exactly it. Going in the 1920s and 30s. And then the silver screen. Sorry. <laughs> you do that a little too well. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so we, uh, we got the talkies going on at this point. But from a fine arts perspective, things in L.A. were like super stuffy. So L.A., it was one of the first American cities to form a arts commission. And we're talking like capital A and C. But what happened to, what about New York? I can't tell you that. Yeah, I just know L.A. was one of the oh, first. Okay. It was about, um, I think, about 1905 or 1907 when they officially formed the Arts mm. Commission. And that gave them essentially rule of pretty much everything over the city, from murals to even what the lampposts were designed. Oh, the Arts Commission, they used that power to have control over everything to keep things very white and very proper. Mm. Yep. Mm. It's, you know what, thinking about it, they they would be the equivalent of that annoying, like, parent-teacher association who insisted that the private school in Utah needed to be able to make Black History Month optional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, into the 1920s, there weren't really any major art museums in L.A. So, like, a very wealthy woman, Aline Bardell, she was like, hey, you guys can have 36 acres of, like, prime Hollywood real estate to build something. What did they build? They tried not to build anything. I mean, like, in today's money, like, that property in Hollywood, actually in Hollywood, would be worth billions of dollars. And the commission, they were like, um, no. Because she favored modern art, she had socialist views, and worst of all, she was a single mother. What? They viewed her, Milana, she was an embarrassment, and they did not want to take anything from her. What? Even a donation of 36 acres of Hollywood real estate. What? To build, like, an art institute or museum. Like, that's how stuck up these people were. Oh, my God. It was a legal fight to get them to take the property. And eventually, she was like, well, fine. If you guys aren't going to take it, I'm going to give it to a labor activist. Yeah. And they were like, wait, no, no, no. Okay, all right, fine. We'll take it. We'll take your Hollywood property. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then in, like, another instance... They, there was, like, an area of the city that had, you know, been, like, redeveloped, and they're like, oh, it's so pretty. We, we want to attract tourism. They had the famous Mexican artist David Sequeiros paint a mural. And, I mean, he's, he's like, one of the big three Mexican mural artists from that time, along with, mm-hmm. like, Diego Rivera. Right. And they wanted something, you know, like, feel good, like, stereotypically, like, Mexican. Because, like, you know, we want to bring the tourists, but, like, also keep, like, the ethnic neighborhood charm, right? Um, so he was like, okay, cool. I'm going to paint migrant farmers. <laughs> they whitewashed it. Yeah. Oh. Because they're like, you can't do that. You can't be critical of capitalism. You can't talk about immigration. You can't acknowledge that we have to have people pick our what? food that we buy at, like, markets. Like, yeah, yeah. What? So, and, like, into the Cold War era, like, this arts commission, they, I mean, they really dictated what was proper fine arts in L.A., and this did affect Beulah, which is why I'm mentioning this. But also, I could technically do like a mini episode just all about them and being buttholes, especially in the 60s. They were flaming buttholes. But I mean, yeah. that's after Beulah's time. So instead, we're back oh, to Beulah. Late 1920s, and she marries. She was about 33 when they married. And I do know he was like sincerely supportive of her art. Good. Okay. Yes. That's positive. Which is great. She even had a home studio that she worked at, you know, and then started showing her art, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And Beulah, so she worked in clay. So she worked in terracotta, just like me. 
And then she did wood. Did she also put the terracotta on her face I to help with the pores? No, that's a good question, actually. Because sometimes I do that, and it's I haven't done a mud mask in a while. I'm just saying. It works. It does. Get those oils. Get that T-zone cleaned out. So I, I don't know if she was doing that with her clay. And she definitely was not able to do that with the wood and the metal and the paper mache that she worked with, too. Uh, yeah, because she was working in a few different materials, and there's even one piece I know she had bronze cast as well. And in terms of what she's making, it all goes back to that childhood experience she had meeting someone from Africa. So Pula is making figurative work. She's showcasing African-centric narratives and like specifically focusing in on traditional customs of tribes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Pula is like specifically focused in on like tribes from the Congo. That's why I think maybe that person that she met when she was a kid was from that country. So, but I mean, really... Honestly, no way of knowing. Yeah, in terms of what Beulah is making, she's creating a smaller scale like ceramic bust of people. And then at times they feature traditional characteristics of the, the various tribes that she has kind of researched and examined. So one example is a portrait of a Hmong Batu woman. And within that tribe, as like a marker of beauty, but then also social status, what they do is actually elongate skulls. Yeah, it's pretty. So just like in mm. like some some communities, you know, I've done like the neck rings. They apply a similar technique to the skulls mm-hmm. to, you know, give them a tapered appearance. And then there's this distinctive hairstyle that goes with it in terms of like the hair pulled back, but then woven into like this disc at the top, which almost looks like a halo. I see it. Yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty wild. And it's actually that same look has found its way into popular culture. I don't know where the head ends and the hair begins. Like Beyonce oh adopted that hairstyle in, in her film Black is King. And then also one of the um, oh. characters in the Black Panther movie, which I haven't seen because I'm just not really into superheroes. But You're missing it. But yeah, Angela Bassett, she had the same look in her role in Black Panther featured the same similar hairstyle but it's all pulling back from this this one particular yeah. tribe and from the congo huh it's a big tribe i wouldn't say necessarily that it's a big tribe it's just that their cultural ideas of beauties have had an influence today mm. so Beulah, she's creating these these busts and then she's also making tribal masks too and these are like a mix of material mm. like wood and sheet metal and also some shells incorporated in and just like with her portrait, like she's pulling from traditional aesthetics from these various communities that she studied to essentially like recreate their mass. And yeah, it's really neat. I, I wasn't able to find a lot of her mass. There was only really two in particular that I found documentation of. So, I mean, just like her biographical info is like there is a handful of artwork. That you can find of hers like online but aside from that I, I know we're missing pieces oh yeah the mask that keeps showing up is the one with like the, the six prongs coming yes. out of its head yeah and that particular mask was just recently featured yeah. in a uh, a show la blacksmith show at a, col- a museum in pasadena oh nice that was in 2019 but in total, I know she made at least 19 of them. And it's a question of like, okay, well, where are the others? What happened to them? And we just like don't know. Yeah. Who's, who's got them hoarded somewhere? Now, Beulah, for displaying her artwork, in, 19, in the 1930s, she had her first show displaying her art at the offices of an African-American-run newspaper, the California News, and then later at a little at a local library, and then the much larger, like, central library in L.A. And I suspect that at the public libraries, 
Beulah had the support of a Miriam Matthews, and she's known as the Dean of Los Angeles Black History. The Dean? The Dean. Yeah, it was very, I probably, uh, fortuitous that Beulah got to know Miriam at the same time. So Miriam, she was the first African-American librarian to be hired by the Los Angeles public library system. And she was a huge and very fierce supporter of black history and culture, as well as a patron of the arts. So I know like she had to kind of fight her way to get her position at the library system. And I feel like she was just one of those amazing women that was like, she saw someone like Beulah and was like, Mm -hmm. I know I can help you. Like, I know how I can make things a little easier for you. Just like, I really wish Mm -hmm. I probably had someone to help me, like that type of attitude, which I think is really wonderful. Right. There was one population in 1914 that kind of describes Beulah's work and what she was known for at the time, saying that she was knowledgeable, quote, in the field of ethnology, specializing in African masks, of which she has made 19 the product of many painstaking years of research. Yeah, I imagine she had to go through a lot of that. Which, you know, curiously enough, also having a friend in Miriam probably helped her pull resources from the library, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Closest thing she had to Google at the time. Right. And it was those masks that she was able to research and to make that were in her solo show in 1935 at what is now the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. At the time, it was the Los Angeles Museum of History, Science, Ooh. and Art. And unfortunately, I feel like Beulah's art was seen as a novelty. Like the press put it, they called her work bizarre. What did they call her work? Bizarre. Uh, how? As opposed to like actual serious art. Bizarre? Like, uh, how? There is like really rich symbolism and craft in her work and the history that she's pulling from and the communities that she's learned about. They're literally just busts of people. Well, it was the masks. It was. Oh, the masks. Okay. It was the masks that she had. Okay. At the LA at the LA show. Oh. So the mask in and of themselves, they're nothing overtly political or challenging about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like that factored into her getting the solo show. Right. They were innocuous enough to just just slide in. Yes. And I, yeah. I feel like that made it like palpable to a majority white audience. Mm-hmm. It allowed them to, like, consume work of the other, but also be able to kind of dismiss the credibility and, like, creative richness to it at the same uh... time. Like, to consume it, but also deny, like, oh, she's not, like, a real artist. Like, Ugh, of yeah. course. But that show, it did help increase Beulah's popularity, and, like, other venues did invite her to show her work and to do lectures. But beyond that, like, I don't have any details about it. I have a feeling as a whole, she was probably left out of the traditional art market in L.A., mm. which is already kind of yeah. slim to begin with at that time. Right. But Beulah, you know, she is making art and she's also really active in various community organizations. Oh, OK. So her and the librarian I mentioned, they were both members of the Los Angeles Negro Art Association. And like Beulah helped like found like a multiracial gallery association, too. That's so cool. And then in 1951, she was asked by Kenneth Ross, the Arts Commission's new director, to help organize, like, a two-week citywide art event. What? And he was actually, like, a pretty cool guy. So he had this idea of, like, coming in and having this huge art event, like, literally in every neighborhood in L.A. What? And so he asked her to be the director for one of the neighborhoods. Ooh. Yeah. 
like to help really oversee everything, everything that went in into that particular it. area. Yeah. So she helped organize that um, scenario called South Park. It's a public park, no surprise, south of LA. And that was a really popular place for African Americans. Right. And where the other citywide events were published in like all the papers. Right. That particular one was only advertised at the newspaper that she had her work shown at, the California Times. Of course it was. Because, like, this Kenneth Ross, like, he really wanted all these events to be really inclusive and rich, but he also recognized that if, like, the directors of the really stuffy arts commission or, like, mm-hmm. even other, like, residents caught wind of, what? It's not an all-white mm-hmm. event? Mm-hmm. He knew there would be backlash. And there actually was right. a lot of backlash after the event. Oh, my God. Not for what you're thinking, though. So, <laughs> kind of weird. So, overall, like, the event was a hit. Yeah. Like, people loved it, but because people are always going to be assholes, there was an official hearing afterwards brought on by, you know, the Stuffy Arts Commission saying that... For what? That commies had infiltrated the event and that artists were, quote, tools of the Kremlin. Yeah, your face. Uh, well, we're in the Cold, er- the Cold War era by now. I'm sorry, what if the what? It, this is ridiculous. So, they had a public hearing and... There was legit debate about, like, a sea landscape paintings that had some boats, like, on the water. And someone was like, if you look closely enough on one of the sailboats, there's obviously a communist symbol embedded in, like, the sails. And then another one was, like, a point of contention was how an artist had a a piece of work that featured the moon. And this person had it up there, but they're like, well, the moon's not even round in your painting. It's not even actually a circle. And? What? See, that's the type of stuff. These guys were, like, nitpicking. They were, like, big buttholes. I don't... This is a little sidetrack story. This is... What? So... What? So it's quite frequent that for public buildings, a portion of the budget has to go towards public art. And that was the case in the 1960s for a new um, police headquarters in L.A. And so it was a two-year process of approving a piece of art from approving to having it made to installation. And... The approval had gone on. You know, the artist was in the final stages of installing it and people started a stink. So it was this really, this really tall sculpture, mostly flat, you know, so I can just kind of go up against the wall and be featured of a family, you know, what looks like a mom, a dad, a baby and a child. And people were just so enraged that this abstract stylized sculpture of this family was too stylized because it was fairly simplified forms. They were mad that that family didn't look white. What? And the artist was like, yeah. He's like, I stylized it. So when you look at it, you're looking at the idea of a family. And so that could be any family. And people were like, well, you can't have that because it's not white. And it's mostly white people and taxpayers who are paying for this. So it needs to look like us. What? That was legit people's arguments. And the art commission, like, wanted to halt it. And it's like, like, wait a minute. It was approved under you guys. Like, this wasn't an issue two years ago. So even the Arts Commission just, tried to halt it. It was, it's, just, yeah, big public stink. So they're big buttholes. I don't, I, I also went through, like, a really intense rabbit hole today on Facebook. I didn't, I didn't comment on anything, but I was, like, scrolling through a few profiles, and I just, I, like, can't understand their stupidity, and now this stupidity, and I just don't, like, I have no faith in humanity right now. I know, I know. None? None. Like, and it's really sad that, you know, this is something from the 1960s, but you still have people uh, spouting the same type of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. 
today yeah. and it's, it's all under this like guise of like family values and we're like no let's call it for what it really is no you want to keep things white that was the case in that particular instance but yeah so after that initial hearing for this citywide art event the arts commission significantly cut funding and they did that to basically ensure that the event would never happen again and that that robbed opportunities from artists like beulah I'm sorry. I just have nothing to say. I know. So, 1955, at the age of 59, Beulah passed away. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I have no idea the circumstances. And how and why. Did the... Yeah, like, I don't even know if her and her husband had, like, a family at all. I don't know if she had children. Did the festival start up again later? Like, did funding come back? I, I don't know what happened after. I mean, I'm I'm sure... There's events like that that happen, you know, in non-COVID times. I just don't understand how people look at things that are so different and just hate it so much. I don't get it. Beauty and everything. And I don't know. I don't know. I know. But like if LA was doing it, then you know other places are still doing it. Yeah. And I guess a part of me wondered if LA, if during that particular time it was worse because just geographically, that's a much more diverse and rich mm-hmm. area. And so I don't know if they felt they had to, like the need to fight so much harder because of that to try to establish this white dominancy that you're like, okay, cool. Like that's that's not a reality here. My heart is broken because these, these pieces are beautiful from what I see. Like they're done so well. They're so detailed. And... Yeah, I really, I really like the work of Beulah, especially her, her bust because they almost look like Every piece is, like, just gently exhaling a bit. Like, there's just soft, like, life to them, yeah. which is really wonderful. Like, sometimes you get portraits that are just very stiff, but that's not the case no. with hers. And there has been appreciation of her work in recent years. Like I mentioned, there was that L.A. Blacksmith show, and that was at the California African American Museum. And then that same year, 2019, she also had work included at a group show, Extraordinary Californian Women Artists, working from 1860 to 1960 at the Pasadena Museum of History. I like her work, you know, it's sold at auctions, it's in numerous private collections, but compared to other artists that we've covered, like, appreciation of her work is limited and biographical information is light. And I mean, you know, all those things do influence one another, so, like, while I can't definitively say, like, I really think it was racism that likely excluded Beulah Woodward from being included in a more comprehensive way, just in terms of, like, you know, American art history. Uh. An article about contributions of black women opens up, quote, They are the most disadvantaged group in America, and that sex disabilities, in addition to the liabilities of race, have left them unprotected victims of our social system. Now, that was written 73 years ago, in 1948. Wow. But it's like... Honestly, not too far off from where we're at. No. Language is a little outdated, but I mean, the the theme of it is like... It's never ending. Yeah. Never ending. And just think, like, for every artist like Beulah, like, artists that are, like, underappreciated or have been actively excluded, like, just think of all the other ones. Right. Like, just think of everyone else who didn't even make it that far. That didn't even get that one paragraph on Wikipedia. Yeah, that history really has forgotten because they were so thoroughly, like, excluded or denied. Yeah. Or just robbed of those opportunities, so... That's my feel-good story for today. Ah! Sorry. I want to go back to the orangutans. Ah. My heart is broken. I have no words. That's Beulah Woodward. 
I need to get out and hug my dog right now. Oh, sorry. We're good. As always, if you guys have made it this far, we super appreciate it. You guys are pretty awesome. Milana, if people want to see images of Beulah's portraits or images of orangutans or even maybe pictures of some big puffy tomcat cheeks, where can they go? Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's the voice I use with Victor, my deaf dog, just so you know. (laughs) The voice that he cannot hear. He cannot hear, but he knows deep down. (laughs) We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We are under Facebook and Instagram at myfavoritefeminist. We have a Twitter. It's at Milena Mega. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can find us where you find any major podcast, so Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher. It takes two seconds to like, subscribe, share, comment. Let us know if you could choose between time travel or space travel which one would you choose megan okay well obviously time travel because you travel in time to a period in which they have space travel and you're good two for one special don't give me that look just time travel you stay on the earth yeah i time travel on earth to a period in which i can then pursue space travel off earth forever no (laughs) the matter we interact with and know of and can see makes up 5% 5% of the universe, Megan. Oh, my. You and your dark matter nonsense. Does that does that not scare you? And make me feel utterly insignificant? Does yes, <laughs> it does. No, excuse me while I go make a piece of yes. art to feel better. Why would you go out into that? Okay, think of all the different alien people that I could sculpt portraits of. I'm going to stay on Earth. On Earth. Well, I'll have to send you a postcard and hope you get it. That you're in the proper time dimension that I send it to. I'll find it. That'll be fine. Just one solid, like, P.O. box at one fixed point of time that you always yeah. travel back to. It's always Tuesday there. Yeah. The same Tuesday. <laughs> the same Tuesday. I like it's it. fucking great. All right. We've got cool. this. I mean, and honestly, that's, like, not too different from, like, our remote setup that we're doing now. I mean, like, what's 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 I the know. vast difference of space and time when we're already doing, like, a 300-mile difference? I miss you. I miss you, too. I miss you so hard. I'm going to go cry some more now. Thank you for bumming me out more. Yeah, this is why I don't have that many friends. <laughs> it's just me. Okay, no, I'm like two others. Okay. But I mean, yeah, it's 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 really, it's mostly you. It's all you. I've got all my eggs in one basket and that basket is Milana. Some people call you a basket case. I don't. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> On that note, we'll see you guys next time. So, until then, <laughs> bye guys. Bye. Whoa, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's what? What? And do all the lady cats go? Yeah, I want me some of that. I don't want to sit on that face. <laughs> I think. So. Oh, yeah.